We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, September 26th, and I am Grace's dad. If you're not familiar with Grace's story, she was murdered in a hospital in Appleton, Wisconsin on October 13th of 2021. Grace had Down syndrome, and her premature death launched me into becoming a full-time advocate, activist, researcher, and now we have the first of its kind lost with the first journey in the entire country to be heard starting the first day or the day before the presidential election, November 4th of, 1st of or November 4th of 2024. It's a three-week jury trial. So it's um it's quite an honor to be here. It's quite humbling to be in this role. And I uh I'm thankful that God has given me this platform. We call this show Deprogramming with Grace's Dad because it is the single most important thing that I've learned since Grace's death is how programmed I was. And there will be no exception to learning about programming today with my guests. But before we get started, like I always do, I share something about Grace. And her 21st birthday was last Friday, September 22nd. And we didn't we never sugarcoated the truth with grace and you know when you think about something as simple as electric cars people think oh wow electric car then i don't have to put gas in the car it'll save me money but the reality is grace would have asked well dad where does the electricity come from and when i would have explained that to her she would have said well, i don't get it which is right so anyway we're going to show a couple of pictures of grace here to start out so don can you bring up the the calf being born picture all right, so this is a little calf that Grace named Rosebud uh, that didn't take to the mom right away. So we thought Rosebud was gonna die. And so we'll, we'll do the next video, Grace helping me feed Rosebud. So now you can see Rosebud, this was about three days after her birth, she, she became alive and uh, she had her first calf last year. So then again, in the spirit of not sugarcoating the truth with Grace, we'll show what happens, what's the end game. Yes, you see it. All right, so Grace knew what the truth was and this podcast is about the truth. So Don, can you bring in our guest today? Our guest today is Matthias Desmet. And welcome, Matthias. Good to see you. Thank you. Likewise. Nice to see you, Scott. It was quite uh, quite a fiasco getting us scheduled, but we're finally doing it. So it's it's neat to have you. I've got some some uh, questions for you because you wrote a a book that I have a copy of right here that will reference. I'll just show it for the audience. Uh, the psychology of totalitarianism, and we'll be referencing that as we go. So Matthias has been in the alternative media as much as anyone since COVID, trying to wake us up to what's happening from his perspective. I don't normally read bios, but I'm going to read Matthias's because I think it does a great job. He sent it to me, and it does a great job in a short period of time. Matthias is recognized as the world's leading expert on the theory of mass formation as it applies to the COVID-19 pandemic. He is a professor of clinical psychology in the Department of Psychology and Educational Sciences at Ghent University in Belgium and a practicing psychoanalytic psychotherapist, say that twice, 
His work has been discussed widely in the media, including on the Joe Rogan Experience and in Forbes, the New York Post, Salon, and Fox News, among hundreds of other outlets. Uh, Matthias is the author of over 100 peer-reviewed academic papers and wrote the book that I showed you on the screen. So the title of today's program, I've titled it, Is Mass Formation What's Behind the COVID PSYOP? And we're going to start with a clip from Tucker Carlson. So Tucker Carlson called Matthias the smartest person he's ever had on his program. So that's quite a, <laughs> that's quite an accolade. So this program or this cut from Tucker Carlson will be our introduction and then we'll start talking from there. So go ahead and roll that clip, please, Don. The mass formations became stronger and stronger and stronger throughout the last few hundreds of years. And that's interesting because it's because the in, the in the first half of the 20th century, the masses became so strong that led by certain leaders, they could seize control of the state apparatus. And that's how totalitarian states emerge. Yes. Totalita totalitarian states, Hannah Arendt says, are always a diabolic pact between the masses and their leaders. It's a diabolic pact between the masses and their leaders. And in this way, like a completely new kind of state emerges, which is completely different from a classical dictatorship. In a classical dictatorship, there is a small group of people, a dictatorial regime, who has such an aggressive potential that people are so scared of them that they can impose unilaterally their social contract to, the, to, the socia to society. Yes. But the totalitarian state emerges in a completely different way. In a totalitarian state, there is first a process of mass formation, which is a process through which uh, a certain part of the population, usually about 30%, fanatically starts to believe in a certain ideology, and this phenomenon can be created uh, uh, artificially through indoctrination propaganda. And, and just to pause, you think that number can be as low as 30%? Yes, usually it is not higher than 30%. Yes. That's scary. That's scary because, yes, but there is always 60 or 65% of the people who do not really go along with the narrative, but who will never speak out, who will always choose the easy way and go along with the people, with this group of people that seems to have the loudest voice. And that's why in the end, up to 95% or even sometimes even more, go along with, uh, with the totalitarian narrative. I've just mentioned that mass formation makes individuals completely blind for everything that goes against what the group believes in. But there is two other characteristics that are also extremely important. And the first one is that when people are in the grip of mass formation, they seem to lose all awareness of their individual interests. They are prepared to radical to radically self-sacrifice. That's extremely strange. And then the third characteristic, which is the most problematic, is that people in a mass formation become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. Yes. And in the ultimate stage of the mass formation, they will typically start to destroy everyone who doesn't go along with the masses, and they will do so as if it is their ethical duty to do so. So it's interesting you mentioned Hannah Arendt in that clip because I've become a student of hers too. After I, I realized that Grace was taken out because of a genocide, I started digging and I, I started studying her research in the banality of evil. I thought that was, uh, she, she did a great job. But what I'm curious from your perspective is what ideology have, do you believe the masses have bought into? And then how did that happen? In the end, ultimately, I believe the ideology they buy into is, the, is a materialist, rationalist ideology, which now, in its contemporary 
form is called transhumanism. So um, we like like a few hundred years ago, we started to believe that um, the entire universe is like a, a dead material phenomenon. Um, it started with the Big Bang, which created all kinds of uh, particles, material particles, atoms, molecules, which collided with each other, formed planets and stars, and on one of these stars, um, life started. And we as a human being, we are nothing more than a set of elementary particles, atoms and molecules, a, bio, a complex biochemical process, um, which can be perfectly understood, just like the rest of the universe, by the laws of uh, classical mechanics, which means that the entire universe, including the human being, is a machine, a machine that can be perfectly understood, described, controlled and manipulated in a rational way, through rational knowledge. So that's, I believe, the ideology yeah. that seized control of society and, and of the human mind in general. And, and it's strange to see how once this ideology replaced the religious, a more religious view on man and the world, it created two parallel, very important phenomena. One, it created a new elite, a new elite which believed that the only way to keep control of society was through indoctrination and propaganda. That's very important. Many people, uh, few people are aware of that, that this, this materialist view on men in the world immediately led to the emergence of a completely new kind of lie which had never existed before and which we called propaganda. <laughs> That's yes. crucial, just because the new leaders within the religious view on men in the world, um, there was like this idea that God created certain men to lead and others to follow, and people accepted that. Maybe they didn't believe it really, but they accepted it. And the new leaders, uh, after the religious view on men in the world, um, became less prominent and was replaced as the dominant ideology by the materialist view on man in the world, um, the leaders just couldn't uh, overtly impose their will anymore to the population. And they found a solution to that. Uh, all founding fathers of, 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 uh, of modern propaganda mentioned this. this. The leaders suddenly found, observed that they were not leaders anymore, but followers. They had to be elected and to be elected they had to do what the population wanted, meaning that they were not leaders anymore, they were followers. And they found a solution to that. If they couldn't make the population do what they wanted in an overt way, they could let them make, they could let them do what they wanted without the population realizing that they did what the leaders wanted. That means the leaders had to manipulate the population constantly. And that was where modern propaganda was born. If you read the... Uh, if you read all the, the, the work of the founding fathers, such as uh, Edward Bernays, Lippmann and yes. Trotter, they all, they all mentioned that. They all mentioned that. That's, that, that was, uh, they, they, in one way or another, they believed that the only way as an elite to keep control of society and of the population was through propaganda and indoctrination. And that was the first thing, very important. That was a direct consequence of the materialist view on men in the world. And then the second very important thing was that the population changed. 
So the population got in a psychological state where it felt lonely, uh, where, it, where it experienced lack of meaning making, where it was confronted with a lot of anxiety, frustration and aggression. And this state, this lonely state, is exactly the state where a population is sensitive for indoctrination and propaganda. And that, that is the diabolic pact uh, described by Hannah Arendt, the diabolic pact between the masses who, who excessively use propaganda and indoctrination and the population, and a part of the population itself, which easily buys into the propaganda, falls prey to it, and blindly follows the propaganda narratives. Uh, that, that, that is how... Uh, uh, the, uh, a new kind of mass, a new kind of crowd emerged in the 20th century, the so-called lonely crowd, which never existed before. It's it's um, really, yeah, this propaganda use, I've also studied that, and it's interesting that you know, propaganda has been going on. I think you're right, in the 20th century is when it became really alive, but then in the United States, the Smith-Munt Act, which was passed in 1948 to prevent the United States government from using propaganda against its own citizens, that was repealed in 2012 or 13. And so they crossed the T's and dotted the I's in that way, in many more ways, to do what they did legally to us. And you know they see it as their responsibility to spread propaganda because that's their that's their job. It is it is so strange to me. You, you really did a great job summarizing that ideology. I was wondering what you were going to say to that question. All right, Don, can you play the second clip? This is Jimmy Dore uh, talking about asking questions. I think it's it's really a great clip. Go ahead, Don. But the weird thing that happened around COVID, I'd never noticed this before in any other time of my life, but you weren't allowed to ask questions and at, at any point during this. You just had to, you had to do what the man on the TV said, right? You had to do what the man on the TV said without questions, and then you're a good person. But if you question it, then you're a white supremacist, Trumper, not, they're like, whoa, no, no. <laughs> no, I didn't vote for Trump. I just have questions. Jimmy. Only dumb people ask questions. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure we're supposed to question authority. It's like a value. Uh, is that what they taught you in comedy school? <laughs> yeah, that is what they taught me in comedy school. Isn't that weird? It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Even comedians would get on stage and they would shame people for trying to get informed about a medical treatment that was experimental that they had to take or they would lose their jobs and they wouldn't be able to travel. And when people tried to get informed about that, other people shamed them. They would say, please tell me you're not gonna do your own research. <laughs> You've heard people say that, please don't do your own research. You know, before COVID, doing your own research used to be called reading. Now you're shaming me for reading? At the behest of Big Pharma? It's like I woke up in the middle of a Bill Hicks bit. Well, looks like we got ourselves a reader. <laughs> Tell me, boy, what you reading for? Don't you know everything that needs to be read has already been read by a smart person? 
That's how much people internalized the propaganda from Big Pharma was that they would shape, they would be anti-intellectual enough to shame people for reading while they're wagging their finger at them for doing it. You would never shame people for trying to get informed, no matter what other subject it was, no matter how unimportant. Like if I say, "Hey, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go buy a car," don't look into it. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy, I enjoy his, his whole mannerisms, everything. But I mean, the topic, I, I own a business, Matthias, and I see when I hire young people that critical thinking, the idea of being responsible, it's been completely trained out of them. So I'm curious as to how much of that uh, public training or lack of training is part of how they were able to pay off or be able to pull off the COVID psyop. You know, yes, I, I was on Jimmy's show uh, a few months ago. <laughs> I saw you on it. Yes, it was a it was a very nice sketch. So, like, well, yes, um, uh, well, I think it's something. You know, uh, that's actually why I wrote my book to 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 make people understand that what was happening now is part of a much longer and broader cultural, psychological process. Um, um, it's, it's quite hard to explain, of course, uh, but um, um, I believe that um, in, 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 in a strange way, we've seen how uh, first people, the, the population became more individualist. So they, they, and even more egoistic, you could say. Uh, but then, then something very strange happened always. And, and it, as soon as uh, people go to a, to, a, to a more extreme individualist state, uh, they start to feel that uh, their life starts to be more and more meaningless. That's a strange thing. Huh? Like they, 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 extreme individualism usually leads to disconnectedness and leads to uh, lack of meaning making in life just because as a human being... Um, uh, spontaneous uh, experiences of purpose and meaning in our life emerges when we see that we have an effect on the other. When we see that uh, what we do uh, has an effect on the other. And if that, if, if we do not, not do, if we do not no longer experience that, if we are too disconnected and too individualist, uh, individualistic, then uh, we, we don't experience these effects anymore. And we, we, exp we, we start to spontaneously experience life as as a as a as a without purpose and and it's this state in a very strange way which makes people suddenly switch suddenly from extreme individualism to extreme collectivism and that's the that happens through propaganda usually yes. it's, it's, it's 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 people suddenly um as soon as they are in this individualist state in this, uh, as soon as they, they struggle with these with this lack of purpose and meaning making, uh, they will typically start to be confronted with strange affective phenomena, such as um, uh, free-floating anxiety, frustration, aggression, and aggression. That's very typical. People start to be confronted with a kind of anxiety which they cannot connect to a mental representation. So meaning that they feel anxious, but they don't know what they feel anxious for. In the same way, they feel frustrated, but they don't know what they feel frustrated for. They feel aggressive, and they don't know what they feel aggressive for. And it's in this state uh, that people are extremely vulnerable for narratives distributed through the mass media, 
that indicate an object of anxiety and provide a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, such as uh, we have a problem with the virus and lockdowns are a solution. Just because when people feel anxious and they don't know what they feel anxious for, they feel completely out of control. And uh, as soon as they can connect their anxiety to, to a mental representation, for instance, a virus, and someone provides them with a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, they feel in control again. And then something much more important happens because they notice that other people also uh, participate in a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety. They feel as if they fight this collective heroic battle with this object of anxiety and they feel connected again. They don't feel lonely and disconnected anymore. So I think that is now, if you wonder why people have so don't have much res resilience uh, with respect to propaganda and indoctrination, that's exactly the reason why. It's because they, 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 there is something in their psychological system that, that disconnects them from others. And in a, in a desperate way, they, they buy into the propaganda narratives just to feel connected again. But the strange thing is, and that's just crucial, that's something crucial, they are not connected again. They right. are not connected. It's not because you, you fight this collective heroic battle with a virus that you are connected to other human beings. No. A mass is a group which is formed not because individuals connect to each other. It's a group that is formed because individuals connect with the same collective ideal, meaning that the longer the mass exists, the more connected everyone is to the collective and the less to someone else. The more solidarity they feel with the collective, and in the end, they do not feel any solidarity anymore with other human beings, meaning that in the end, they all report each other to the collective, to the state. Yes. <laughs> I heard this woman, this woman in Iran who, who lived in Iran in the revolution of 1979. And uh, uh, she, 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 she has seen how a mother reported her son to the state and how she hung the noose around his neck when he was on the scaffold. And when he died, when he died, she claimed to be a heroine for what she did. That's the dramatic end stage of mass formation. And, and, and it be all begins with this rationalist fuel man in the world, which leads to loneliness and disconnectedness through a series of psychological mechanisms. So you have to consider the entire process to understand why people so easily fall prey to propaganda and indoctrination, I think. Well, you started out with the idea that once we buy into materialism, that we're just a, a piece a, of a, a process versus part of God's creation, you know, that leads you down this slippery slope and ultimately gets to the point where they can pull off this thing. And so like you mentioned about the idea of, of feeling alone, well, the lockdowns, then you buy into the lockdowns because that cures your anxiety temporarily, but then the lockdowns produce even worse anxiety. You know, the this idea to me it seems like the masses, you know, I'm, I'm thankful I'm 60 years old. I still grew up when critical thinking was trained, uh, but the masses are hypnotized. And so you were on InfoWars explaining the impact of hypnosis. And we're going to play that clip next so that we can get your, your comment on it. Go ahead, Don. And this mechanism is so incredibly strong. I've seen it with my own eyes. It happens all the time, for instance, in a university hospital in Belgium. 
how a simple hypnotic procedure is sufficient to focus the attention of a patient so much on one point, one small aspect of reality, that the person won't be aware anymore that the, there is a surgeon who cuts through the skin, through the flesh, flesh, even straight through the breastbone to perform an open heart operation. That's the reason why in a mass formation, when all the attention is focused on one aspect of reality, for instance, the, corona crisis, the coronavirus, people are not aware anymore. You're saying you've seen people hypnotized that can have open heart surgery with no anesthesia. Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. I think that's phenomenal. And it, you know, that seems to be an extreme example, but I don't think it's all that extreme at all because they're still got us, they still have us, the propaganda has us focused on COVID. And, you know, personally, I think it's to put together an amnesty play, but I'd like your comment about um, not just that clip, but I'm assuming based on your, your pedigree, you've studied the Hegelian dialectic. And these things to me fit exactly into the problem reaction solution paradigm of the hegelian dialectic yes you know first and for all they have played this this uh, this this uh, this part of the interview with alex jones time and time again here in belgium to to prove that i'm a liar <laughs> because because um yes yes um uh because i well i i alex jones asked me whether i had seen with my own eyes how a, an open heart operation was performed and I, of course, I, I, I should have corrected him and told him, like, look, I've seen it on a video. Uh, um, um, I didn't see it in real life, in person. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, the video was a video and that, well, that was a, that was a second problem, which was not uh, up to me. I, that was not my fault. But uh, the video was a video not of an open heart surgery. It was a video of a normal heart surgery, not an open heart surgery. And, uh, but but the, the title of the video said in, in big letters like open heart surgery under hypnosis. That doesn't take away. And I wrote a long essay on Substack. I don't know if you're familiar with Substack. I have a Substack page. I yes. published, I published a, a long essay on Substack together with my colleague, uh, Tineke, Tineke de Kok, on the use of uh, hypnosis for in surgical procedures. And there has... I, I still, uh, if, you, if you read the, the, the Substack, you see all the evidence for uh, very um, uh, uh, interventionist uh, operations like amputation of legs, uh, heart surgery, and so on and so on. We list all the, all the scientific literature uh, on, 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 uh, on surgery um, uh, through hypnotic anesthesia. So this is really an extremely fascinating thing. Can you imagine that just by focusing someone's attention, you can amputate his leg? <laughs> that's, that's, that's so formal. It shows the power. It shows the power of the focusing of attention. And that's exactly what happens in a mass formation. In a, in a mass formation, first, all the anxiety, all the frustration, all the aggression is freely floating. That means not connected to mental representations. And then suddenly there is someone on the on through the mass media who says, look, that's what we should be scared of. And all the anxiety at once couples to that object of anxiety. And then, just like in hypnosis, it is as if people don't see the rest of reality anymore. Right. Because they are so all their emotions, all their affective life 
is connected to that one representation provided in a narrative. That's what happens in a mass formation. And mass formation, indeed, as described by most scholars who studied mass formation, mass formation, technically speaking, is identical to mass hypnosis. It is hypnosis. It is exactly the same procedure. With this fundamental difference, which is important, also described by Gustave Le Bon, who wrote this wonderful book, the, the, the Psychology of the Crowds, with this difference that the hypnotist, the people who hypnotizes the masses, usually, not usually, always, is hypnotized as well. He's also in the grip. He's also in the grip of his, not of his narrative, but of his ideology. That's an extremely important difference yes. to make. He usually fanatically believes, blindly believes, in the, in the ideology that is the basis of the narrative. Like in this case, transhumanism, the materialist fuel man in the world, and so on. That's the ideology. But then, to promote this ideology, he will use all kinds of narratives, which can be all kinds of like, like, like the corona narrative, but also it, it can be uh, no matter what narrative. And very often, the leaders of the masses don't believe the narratives they use, but they do fanatically believe in their ideology, because if they don't believe in their ideology, they can never convince the masses. So that's yeah. the, that's a strange thing. You have a blind, a blind um, supra-organism, which, which is composed of the leaders of the masses and the masses, which are both in the grip of an ideology, and in which narratives are used to convince the population and society to accept all these transformations uh, uh, needed to, um, to create a society according to the ideal image of that ideology. So that's, um, that's um, a little bit the, 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 the psychological process that, um, that typically happens and that leads to a, to a mass hypnosis. I want to drill that down a little bit, but I want to plug your Substack since you mentioned it. So uh, I am familiar with Substack. We have our own Substack. So Matthias's Substack is substack.com slash at Matthias Desmet. Correct? They have that right? I think I so. Think, yes. I think I gave it to Don. Don's the producer that he'll put in the show notes too. Uh, <clears throat> the when I drill this down a little bit, so, you know, I'm, I, uh, I couldn't be as smart as you on my best day, Matthias, but I'm going to try to do it in simple terms. So the ideology that the leaders will call, I'm going to put leaders in quotes, has bought into is eugenics. That's the way I see it. So Hannah Arendt coined the phrase banality of evil. And so I can see that banality of evil clearly as it applies to the, dis the disabled. My daughter, Grace, had Down syndrome. I can see it applied to the elderly. It's been going on for decades. But then that ideology of eugenics has produced the, the idea that they're implementing that people are too expensive. And so that's how, you know, that's how I would boil it down in my dad language. So if people are too expensive, then all these crazy things that they're implementing to kill us, you know, medical murder, you know, and you see like there's still the people who have bought into getting vaccinated, 
they're seeing, we had a neighbor of ours whose husband died of a heart attack. He was healthy. She is, but they both got vaccinated. She's completely blind that it's, that his heart attack is likely due to the vaccine. So anyway, I see it as they're implementing this idea that people are too expensive and selling it in a myriad of ways to the population. Of course, COVID exposed one of the most nasty ways, but I mean, this has been going on for decades. You think that that my simple way of dissecting that is accurate? You know, um, I really believe, as you said, that most people that are part of the system truly believe that they, that they do the good thing. That's exactly what Hannah Arendt with the banality of evil, evil explained. The right. extremely strange, baffling observation after the Second World War was that most Nazis who were put to trial in an extremely strange way continued to, 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 to claim that uh, in their opinion, um, uh, uh, they just uh, uh, did their best did the best thing, the best possible thing for the Jewish people, for instance. Ex extremely strange. They said, well, but no, but we tried all kinds of solutions. There was only one solution. And then, and even uh, um, Eichmann, uh, the, the, the Nazi officer uh, on whom Hannah Arendt wrote her famous book, The Banality of Evil, um, continued to claim uh, throughout the process, uh, they, 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 he, they showed letters that Eichmann wrote to to, uh, to to certain Jewish people, to uh, to to rabbis in, in the in the large European capitals, starting with sentences such as uh, "I do I can believe that you're not as enthusiastic as we are about our plan, the Holocaust, but uh, I think um, we can count on your we can count on your cooperation." So that's what that's what he said. I I, be I believe. Um, that, uh, that, that, that you understand that you need to cooperate with us. Yep. He, he, that, that's what he asked the Jewish people. And, and Hannah Arendt said, and the strange thing was, they did cooperate, which shows the tremendous power of, of, of mass formation. Both, uh, uh, also the victims fall prey to it, to a certain extent, to a certain extent, some of them fall prey to it. So that's the strange thing. Like, you know, I don't know, whether there is one small evil elite who planned all this, and I'm even not so very much interested in it. A little bit, I do, and I will be. Uh, I will. I, I hope one day we 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 really know how how all this uh, uh, happened. But what I do know for sure is that most people who played a role in it in all this really did it, being convinced that uh, uh, um, uh, 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 they had good intentions. <laughs> that's, yes. That's, well, they're, they're convinced in something wrong, you know, so if a lie is spun enough time, so if Satan has spun the lie that we have limited resources on the planet, uh, we've got to control the, the climate, we have to control the population. I mean, you, you can have a person of integrity, which simply means they're following what they believe in. But if their belief is a lie, they're just implementing you know, they're following through on their beliefs, but their beliefs are false. You mm -hmm. know, the uh, uh, one concern I had when I started understanding this mass formation theory, I'm actually going to read it out of your book because, you know, I'm sure you have a comment for it, but 
this was the concern that I had. I'm just going to read the quote first. So this is on page 139. It says, in substance, the totalitarian leader is nothing more, nothing more nor less than a, a functionary of the masses he leads. He is not a, a power-hungry individual imposing a tyrannical and arbitrary will upon his subjects. Being a mere functionary, he can be replaced at any time, and he depends just as much on the masses he embodies as the masses depend on him. All right. So that being said, what I what I read into that, and I, I saw it a couple of times, but I don't know that you meant this, but I just wanted, because I had the opportunity, I just wanted to ask you, if somebody buys into mass formation theory all the way, does it take away the consequences for the ones who are behind implementing the ideology? Of course not. You know, Freud had a very, had a very nice, uh, uh, I remember a very nice quote of Freud. He said, you are responsible for your unconscious, meaning that no matter how much the leaders of the masses might have believed that they did the right thing, and not all of them believed that they did the right thing, some of them were very intentionally uh, uh, um, right. um, uh, knew very well what they were doing. Uh, but uh, even those uh, who, who, who believed that they were uh, that they had uh, good intentions, that they had the best intentions, are responsible for what they did. That's 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 that's. It's not because you commit a crime unconsciously that you that you're not responsible for it. It makes a difference, of course, and 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 the psychological interpretation of what you did. But 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 for the rest, you 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 are responsible, whether it was unconscious or not. And then. So very, but I, I do believe that it is extremely that is that it is crucial to understand what I want to say there, namely that the big difference between a classical dictatorship and a totalitarian state is that the point of gravity in a classical dictatorship is situated in the elite, yes. in, the in the dictatorial in the dictatorial regime, and in a classical dictatorship. It is true that if you destroy a part of the elite, a substantial part, the system might collapse, probably will collapse. In a totalitarian state, the point of gravity of the system is not situated, not so much in the elite, but rather in the masses. Meaning that if you destroy a substantial part of the elite, it will just be replaced. That's what Stalin knew very well. He could eliminate relentlessly 60%, 70% of his communist party members, they were just replaced and the system continued as it had always, as, as, it, uh, as it always did. So that's just crucial to understand. As long as we, if we, if we want to understand uh, uh, the fight we are fighting here, then we, and, and we want to, to do it in a successful way, then we have to know that what we really need is a change at the level of the aware, the consciousness of the people. It's it's as long as long as people are in the grip of this materialist view on men in the world, this rationalist view on life. Totalitarianism will continue to emerge. They will always continue to buy into the narratives of an elite uh, that tries to manipulate them. So that's what I try to show with my book. It. It, it, it's of course we have to understand what the elite does and we have to it has to be revealed as much as possible that's important but never believe 
that the problem would be solved with eliminating this concrete specific elite. It will be replaced if we continue to look at life in the same way. That's right. Yeah, that, that's that's the basic problem. So that the real revolution we need is not a, an insurrection against the elite. It's, 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 it's a change in the way in which we conceive life. We have to look at life and at this universe and at everything in a different way. We have to understand that rational knowledge is never capable of seizing the es- of, of grasping the essence of life. It is important. We have to think rationally, of course. But something, there is a kind of knowledge that transcends rationality, an empathic knowledge, a resonating knowledge. And it is this kind of, know- of knowledge, is this kind of awareness that is capable of organizing human living together. It's that kind of knowledge that really makes life uh, um, uh, purposeful, that really gives meaning to life, that really makes a human being a human being that can connect to another human being. So that's the true revolution we need. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, my I've been studying this for quite a while when I realized this is a spiritual battle. So I looked at it as being unleashed all the way back in the garden when Satan sold the idea of the tree of knowledge and God sold, God always had the tree of life. And we, we have bought into knowledge as an idol. And, you know, what I see happening is not only have we bought into knowledge as an idol, but we also as a society gravitate towards security and comfort. So we have, you know, I, I think we're at a, a point where we are literally the boiling frog. You know, we have evil being called good. We have good being called evil. You know, so is there, in your opinion, is there a solution to the lunacy we're experiencing? And where does God fit into fixing this mess? Of course, there is a solution. Um, and my, my next book is all about that. I'm writing it uh, now. Um, and, um, you know, while my first book focuses on the script, on, on the, on present an analysis of the, the problem of our culture and our society, namely the problem of uh, rationalism, loneliness, mass formation, and in the end, totalitarianism. Uh, with my next book, uh, I focus uh, on the solution. Like, and, and the solution is clear. Uh, every thorough psychological analysis will conclude that mass formation is a symptomatic, a fake solution for the problem of loneliness. So people buy into a mass formation because they feel not lonely anymore. But that's a fake solution because it will make the mass formation will then make more lonely and more disconnected. Right. The real solution is uh, what we call, of what I call truth telling or truth speech or sincere speech. Sincere speech is a kind of speech that connects people, literally. It makes them resonate like two strings with each other, literally. And sincere speech is a kind of speech that starts not from the ego, which is an outer ideal image, but from what you feel inside of your body, from what resonates inside of your body with the universal truth outside of you. That's we all resonate with the, with reality and the real outside of us, both with human beings and with the universe in general. And it's this resonance. If we listen to this resonance and if we articulate these resonating words, then we speak in a sincere way. 
And if there is someone else who opens up and who allows these words to enter his soul and his body, then the phenomenon of resonance starts. People start to resonate, to vibrate like two strings on the same frequency. And that's where human beings connect with each other as human beings. That's when you feel your soul. That's where you feel your existence as a human being. And that kind of speech, that sincere speech, is what at the same time inhibits the symptom, namely the mass formation. If people continue to speak in a sincere way, the people who fell prey to the mass formation will become less fanatic and the phenomenon of mass formation will not go to the ultimate stage where the masses start to, start to commit cruelties and start to believe that they have to eliminate each and everyone who doesn't go along with them. And at the same time, it's not only uh, a solution or for the symptom, it, it's also the real remedy for the cause of the symptom, namely this loneliness. It's this sincere speech that really connects people to each other from human being to human being. Mass formation was a fake solution for loneliness. Sincere speech is the real solution for loneliness. And uh, that's what I will explain step by step at psychological level, showing people in a practical way, trying to find out how, what it means for a human being to speak in a sincere way. You know, speaking sincerely is always difficult for me and for everyone. But we can get in touch with truth um, if we do our best. And that's what we have to re-appreciate now. That's what, that's what we have to reinvent. For a long time, for several centuries, we have believed that rational knowledge was the cornerstone of human living together and of individual human existence. Yes. It's not true. It's not rational knowledge that is a cornerstone, I think. It's this truth speech, this truth telling. Truth is something completely different than rational knowledge. It's something completely different. People, people think, confuse these two with each other, but it's not. It's even the fanatic belief in rational knowledge was even what killed truth in the end throughout the last centuries. Because a smart person was supposed to cheat and to lie because cheating and lying um, increased his chance on survival. That's what, that's what, that's what our rationalist fuel men in the world made us believe. Um, speaking the truth was something for stupid people uh, because speaking the truth uh, always puts you at risk. <laughs> of, um, and so that's what we have to reinvent and to reappreciate. We have to become aware of the fact that without a certain, if we lose touch with truth speech, we lose, we lose our own soul and we lose uh, uh, our awareness of the essence of ourselves. Well, I, I'm going to um, do a short wrap up here, Matthias, and then come back to you for the closing thought. But I'm going to introduce my wrap up with what you just said, because it, it's true. If we lose truth, we lose our soul. And I have come to believe through reading scripture that we are made up of three parts, our body, our soul, and our spirit. And our body, of course, is uh, pure selfishness if it's not controlled by truth. And Jesus said he is the truth, the way, and the life. And I believe we're in this mess because of sin. The sin that Matthias is pointing out today 
is the sin of our pursuit of knowledge. Our pursuit of knowledge has become an idol. And as a result, we reject God because if you're the most knowledgeable person on the planet, you don't need God anymore. And we see how that's shaking out right now. We have a propensity to want to rely on men to fix problems that only God can fix. And so when we have body, soul, spirit, our spirit can communicate with God and get truth. And then we have the opportunity to share that truth, which is, becomes our obligation to do so. You know, if God is judging us right now because of the sins in the past, I am crystal clear that the only way out of this is through acknowledgement of that sin accepting that we rejected and then repenting. And, you know, in real time, I am still waking up to the indoctrination of lies that have been told. And, you know, hearing Matthias, I had heard him several times before, and then seeing what he wrote in the book, I see, oh my gosh, they have taken this business of lying to us at a level that you know, it's it, the propaganda. You think, well, it just, you know, they just want us to buy this this type of car or whatever. We're talking about men's souls here. The propaganda is at the level that I, I saw a lady who was vax injured from the COVID jab, and she said she would do it again because that was her duty to the population. I mean, it's like this is how. This is how the propaganda has taken our focus off of God. And so anyway, that's, um, that's my close. And, you know, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So he's my rock. That's where I start all of this. My responsibility, just like anybody who has become awake, is to share truth. And with that being said, I'll turn it over to you, Matthias, for the final word. Yes. You know, what you... What you tell about the, the woman who was um, who experienced severe adverse effects of the of the of the jab and who who still believed that it was her her duty uh, to to uh, to take the vaccine. Well, that's very typical, you know. But as soon as you 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 really start to understand um, the the mechanism, uh, the psychological mechanisms at work here, it's not strange anymore, because. All these, all these corona measures uh, uh, functioned as a ritual. Yes. They functioned as a ritual. But people didn't know that they participated in a ritual. We are symbolic beings. As a human being, we are a symbolic being. And we, we need rituals. And within the materialist view of men in the world, people don't realize anymore that they need rituals. And that's why, unconsciously, they suddenly start to participate in the most extreme rituals. What is a ritual? A ritual is always a kind of behavior through which an individual shows that it belongs to a group. It, 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 it's a kind of behavior without practic practical relevance, without pra pragmatic meaning, uh, through which an individual shows that its individual interests are less important than the collective interests. And as a human being, we need rituals to a certain extent just to show that we are connected to, to, to other people and that we, that, we want to, um, that we want to belong, that we want to, to belong to a group. So we need it. But, but when people are not aware that they participate in the rituals, they can 
unconsciously, without knowing it, start to participate in very extreme rituals. And that's how I consider the corona measures. The corona measures very often uh, were a kind of imposed a kind of behavior that had no pragmatic relevance, that had no practical meaning, and through which an individual showed that its own individual interests were less important than the group interests. And that's exactly what this, what this woman told you. What she told yes. you was, I sacrificed myself and I like to do that because I would rather die than, than falling prey again to this disconnected loneliness that I experienced, which is a hell on earth. And, and that's why people suddenly, without knowing what they do, start to participate in rituals of death. That's what, that's what in a certain way, um, uh, what happened, I think. And that's why people, no matter how, how bad the consequences were of the corona, of following, uh, of, of f buying into the corona narrative, they will do it again. That's the point. I, I do think that, you know, I, with God, all things are possible, but I do believe that, uh, you know, he's judging us right now. And I think that we are going to fall trapped for bigger and worse things. But, you know, I still am hopeful. I know that hearts can be changed. And Matthias, it was fantastic to have you on today. Uh, just like Tucker Carlson said, you're the smartest person I've ever, <laughs> ever had on. Uh, I, uh, you're you're at the genius level. So it was really a pleasure to have you on. Very nice meeting you. And thanks for taking out the time today. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, and uh, maybe we hear each other again in the future. Very good. Thank you. Further details, we return you now to your regularly scheduled program.